read from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. This is the word of the Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray together. Father, I call to mind and read just one verse from the Psalms, that it is good to give thanks to the Lord with our whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Father, we do thank you that we get to meet together. I thank you for each brother and sister here, and Lord, we pray that, that you would use your words and you would allow me to get out of the way so that your spirit would speak clearly and all that is said would be grounded in the inspired words of the great God that we serve today, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. You know, in a few months, it'll be the 20th anniversary of the terrible things that happened at Columbine High School, April 20th, 1999. And if you ask me what I remember about that, well, I remember sitting in the, the chair I was sitting in. In fact, it was sometime in the last year that uh, one of the younger nurses in my hospital, we got to talking about Columbine, and she says, well, I remember where I was, and she was somewhere in elementary school, and I said, well, I remember where I was. I was sitting in this chair, right in my hospital, looking over, as maybe some of you did, over and over again to the TV screen. But I remember the memorial service that happened, what was it, just maybe several days later, a week later. And if you ask me what I remember most about that, I remember the words of a great dear brother in our Denver area, Pastor Jerry Nelson, served many years as senior pastor over at uh, Southern Gables E-Free Church. And I remember thinking as he stood up representing just those in pastoral leadership around our area here in the southern part of, of Denver, I thought, what can you say in just a few minutes to make any sense of what's happened? And I remember he told just the very briefest of stories of Betsy Ten Boom. Betsy had been born in Holland, had found herself at the age of 59 in 1944 in a concentration camp. And she was there and, and she was frankly in declining health. She died in August of 1944 in that concentration camp. And 
And there was a time when she was gathered with other women in this crowded, crowded cell, basically, in which they were at, in which she found herself still praising God amidst the circumstances, praising this God of love. And there was a woman that was nearby her, whose name was Maria, Maria Facek, who was Polish. And she looked over, as Jerry Nelson would say, with a snarl, and she held up her recently broken hands. And she said, I was first violinist of the Warsaw Symphony. Where was your God of love? Was he in control of this? And Betsy Ten Boom said, I don't know, but I wish you knew my Jesus. The starting point as we talk about the hard things in life makes all the difference. Rick, in the last two weeks, has, has taken a step back and, and surveyed this topic of suffering, of hardships, of, of real trials in life, and, and really looked at it from the perspective of many in the world who don't start at the same place that we do. Because really, there's two starting places. You either say, what I know about suffering determines what I believe about God, or... What I know about God determines what I believe about suffering. And if we're going to take this passage as God's inspired word and be obedient to it and ask, how does this passage fit into my life, my experience, and that walk in this world that I'm in the way, in, in process, I need to begin with that second question. Because that's where Peter begins. What I believe about my Jesus determines what I believe about suffering. You know, it was Aristotle that's famous, I guess, for saying that when it comes to public speaking, you tell them what you're going to tell them. Then you tell them. And at the end, you tell them what you've told them. And you know what? This topic that we're dealing with today is just what Peter does in 1 Peter. Because this topic, our section right here, is what he'll unfold here and in, coming, in the coming chapters. And then at the very end, really the last part before he says his goodbyes in the last few verses, we jump to verse 10 of chapter 5 and he says this, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will, will himself restore Confirm, strengthen, and establish you. We are on to his really his main point. His main aim in this book is to talk about life's trials, life's suffering, to try to make sense of it to the degree that God has unfolded that, but then he comes back around and reinforces it in the last few verses what is most important to him in this passage. I want to look, have you look at your outline, if you have it there, and just march through that. Because I really find that there's some key phrases that helped me frame this passage. And the first one is there right in verse 6. Let me read verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various 
trials. My first point is there is an undeterred rejoicing that Peter is talking about. Now let's face it, there's a lot of life, a lot of life even today that is filled with mixed emotions. And Peter reinforces that. I think back, just dialing back the clock, the calendar just 10 days ago. And it was a Thursday. And it was a day that my second daughter, Clara, landed in Italy to begin a year study. And I remember just being so grateful that she had landed there on time. There was three planes getting there. And she had called me at midnight trying to sort out how she got from one place to another when she was in Iceland. And, and then around 5.30 a.m., checked in. How do I get in this place over in London to, to my bags? And I'm missing my boarding pass. And she had finally gotten there. And I remember just the enjoyment of knowing she would not only landed, but she was beginning a new phase in life, an exciting new step. And it was the same day that there were some major hearings in the Senate Judiciary Committee. Many of you have been following. And I read something just two or three days later, a man reflecting on it in an editorial. And he said, like most of the country, I watched the proceedings in the Senate two or three days ago. And like most of the country, I went to bed depressed about our country. And I turned to Sandy and I said, that's probably the most solid thing that I've been able to read and think about just in that. And I would say that both of those emotions are lingering emotions. And yet they're bound up in me. And I could go to any one of you and say, write down the 10 most depressing things going on in your life right now. And the rest of us, if we read the list, would say, how are you going on today? And then I could give you a break, get you a cup of coffee and say, let's write down 10 of the most best, most encouraging things going on in your life. And we'd all be jealous. Wrapped up in the same person, Aaron, you and anyone else in this room is this mixed emotions of things to be encouraged about and things that are discouraging. And so I see right in this beginning section, when it talks about suffering, that Peter is recognizing that we're all mixed emotions. We, we all are at a place where there are things that are exciting and encouraging and uplifting, and we are at a place where there are things that if we got to thinking about them were very discouraging. And so one of the things that I see in Peter is that he's saying to us, there needs to be an undeterred rejoicing in your life, no matter what else is going on, no matter how long the list is or how grave the list is of those things that are going on in life, that is your suffering, that are your trials this, at this stage. And, and I see that he says this because right at the beginning, he puts, us, puts next to each other in verse 6 these words. You rejoice, though you grieve. Let me read that again. You rejoice, he says, and then a few verses, a few words later, he says, and you grieve. Why is he able to say that we are to rejoice though there are things that cause us to grieve, sometimes deeply grieve, be deeply upset. He's rehearsed it in the verses right before. I remind you of verses 3 and 4, that is true of any believer in Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, it is unfading, it is kept in heaven for you. I can say to you, fellow brother, fellow sister in Christ, if you know Jesus Christ, that you can rejoice simply because of this. The absolute, let me say it again, the absolute best thing that could ever happen to you has happened to you. You have been saved by the blood of Jesus from eternal destruction to eternal enjoyment of his presence. Think that over in your head. The best thing that could possibly happen in my life if I am a follower of Jesus and he is my Savior and my Lord and I have a living hope, the best thing has happened. And it is in that context that Peter can say to us, in this you rejoice, unfading, undeterred, though there's grief. You know, in some ways that's easy to say, and we can say, yeah, makes sense. It is so good that despite how, how deep the journey is at times, how, how dark the pathway is, I should still be able to give thanks and rejoice. But it's not easy. I, I thought just uh, at our home group over at Ben Eliza's house, we talked a little bit about Martin Luther just in passing. And it, it spurred me to think of something that, that I put in this message. I remember Luther. Keep in mind, Luther, it doesn't matter what you think of the guy. He was a strong personality. Uh, there's a sense in which he took on the major powers in the world of his day in the early 1500s. But when his 13-year-old Magdalena, this cherished gem, his, his daughter who had grown up, an older daughter, and a, da- a daughter who had, had, had come before Magdalena, had died just at a very young age, this, this apple of his eye died at age 13. And, and Luther, even at the funeral, said the words that I know came from the heart would be hard to say, but he said, be not sorrowful for me. I have a saint in heaven. He was, he was seeking with all his, his heart, all his mind to hold on to this truth. But it was a short time later that he would write to a friend in a letter that's still preserved these years later and say, I and my wife should joyfully give thanks for such a departure, but the force of our natural love is so great that we're unable to do this without crying, without grieving in our hearts, without almost experiencing death ourselves. Even, listen to theological Luther say this, even the death of Christ is unable to take that all away as it should. You see the disconnect. He's, he's wanting to hold on to what he believes, but the emotions are overwhelming. And he says, you therefore, my dear friend, would you give thanks to God on my behalf? Because I cannot. You know, we can talk about this ability to, to rejoice and the reasons we should, but it doesn't mean that it's easy. And yet, Peter says, in this you rejoice, though you're grieved. The next thing he talks about is just that the trials have this timeline. 
In, in this verse here, in verse 6, it talks about now for a little while. Here it says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. You know, Paul uh, himself would, would reinforce in a few key verses this same idea that, that these afflictions have, have some finiteness to them. These, these trials are finite. Paul would say it in Romans 8, verses 18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed in us. These, these sufferings in this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Is he talking about this, the size of these things, the size of our sufferings versus the, the size of the glory that we will one day have? Or is he talking about the duration? Well, his teachings in other places would say both. That, that the, the joys of heaven will eclipse, certainly in size and magnitude, the sufferings in this world. But he also talks about these momentary afflictions in another place in Corinthians. They are short in duration compared to what is ahead. In a little while, what does that mean? Well, Peter says it in verse 6 here. He, he says it. I read it to you at the beginning, verses 5, verse 10, chapter 5, verse 10. He also talks about this little while, kind of the same little simple Greek word that just means little. It's not, it's not a fancy theological word. It just really means a little period of time. I remember uh, there was a time Rick Carmichael gave an illustration. I came across it myself, and I want to, to reuse it. It, it was one that a preacher named Francis Chan used, and he was talking about life, our earthly life, in the scope of eternity, and, and trying to come up with just an illustration that would give us, what, what does it mean to have this earthly life and, and compare it to all eternity? And I guess it, first of all, brings up the question, what is the math that's here? What is this little while for you? Because you can say, well, you know, there's times that I have some trials that are short and some that sometimes are suffering that are long. Maybe some of you sit here with health issues and say, I've had this for years. And whatever number of days the Lord gives me, I probably will end with this. I, I, I have a way in which you can figure, do the math in somebody's life. If they've gone on to be with the Lord, you visit their gravestone and you look at the date on the left... And you look at the date on the right, and you figure out how long was between them. That's what Peter says is the little while. It's all of life. The context, uh, the, the teaching, the scholars agree. It's not just, well, my trials are a lot longer than Reed's trials. You know, my little while is kind of a medium little while. His is just a short little while. No, the, the context says this life is the little while. All of life has to some degree trials and difficulties. That little while began at birth and it will not end to your last day. And yet despite whatever number of years you have on this earth, it is a little while according to the scriptures in light of eternity. Well, Francis Chan said it would be like this. He said, if you were to take a, a rope, and this rope, of course, is not very long, but if you were to take a rope and, and throw it, and it would just go off as, in the, as distant as you can imagine, he said, the little wall of your life might be like this little red portion that's just a short little 
distance at the end of the rope. I remember thinking to myself, you know, infinity is still a long time. It probably is far smaller than that, but this is something to just wrap our, our, our minds around a little bit. But you know what he said that I found the most convincing, the most helpful, is he says, you know what, though? Despite the Bible's teachings, what most of us do, we, we spend most of our time within this little red, tie, little red portion of this rope representing our lives, thinking of the rest of the red time that's on this rope. He said, we should be giving far more time than we do thinking in this red time what's going to affect the rest of this rope. But he says, we spend most of our time Simply thinking about that short period of time, this little while in which we are on this earth. Peter says, it's just a little while. And you, you might say to yourself, well, um, you know, I, this is an important thing I'm wrestling with. This is an important uh, decision I have. It's going to affect the rest of my life. Well, that's pretty convincing. Most audiences, this is going to affect the rest of my life. Peter says, that's it? It's only going to affect the rest of your life. He's, he's talking about things that will affect the rest of your eternity in this verse. This little while of this life is, is something that we need to wrap our minds around a little more. When Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.17, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. He's saying that the little part in that red is going to affect all of eternity. What a concept. What a reason to want to live this life, trials and in good times, to the best of our ability with Jesus' help in a way that will affect all eternity in the way we really want it to affect all of eternity. Trials have a timeline. They really are just for a little while, the Bible says. But then it goes on in these, these three verses, seven to nine, to talk about this tested, genuine faith. And I just want to mention a few of the, the words that I see in there that I think help to give us some understanding in there. Let me just look at those verses again with you. Starting in verse seven, so that this tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he begins, you can see that, that the central subject is this tested, genuine faith. There's a few words I think it's worth worth talking about that it comes first of all it comes in in verse six it talks about these trials that's where we've just ended these various trials the ESV says that the NIV talks about trials of various kinds I think and and Peter has has chosen a word here that's not a really sophisticated word it's blandness is what is helpful because it refers to almost anything that's hard. It is a generic term. It's not just talking about health problems or really difficult health problems. It's not just a focus on financial stress. It's not just a focus on 
when life has you weighed down and you're depressed. It's, it's almost anything that's hard. And so in this whole range of possibilities that fall under the word various trials, this simple, simple little Greek word, uh, we could look out in the parking lot and say, well, after church, one of us might realize we just <laughs> locked our keys in the car. And that would fall under this trial. And one of us could walk out and slip on something and break a hip and be in the hospital for two weeks because it led into pneumonia. And it would fall under this same category that Peter's talking about, these various trials. One of us might have financial stress. We're trying to work our pay our way through school. It's a good thing, an admirable thing. It's stressful. And maybe one of us is a little tight on money because we're paying for a few speeding tickets and the court costs and the lawyer we had to get. We're suffering the consequences of our actions and we're going through a trial. Peter, Peter doesn't just say this, this applies to the trials that are, you're totally innocent of. It, it applies to any trial, whether it's life's consequences, whether it's suffering innocently, whether it's big, whether it's small. He makes the point by using just the bland word of various trials to say anything that's hard can contribute to this tested, genuine faith. Anything that's suffering in any scope, little big, health, financial, whatever it might be, kids awry, kids just living far from home, anything can be used by God's Spirit to grow you into a more tested and genuine faith. I, I see in this verse as well that, that, that God is in control. And it's important to remind ourselves that, that God has ordered, but not necessarily authored, suffering in the hard times in our life. God is not the author of sin, some of the great catechisms say. But he is aware of sin. And he can use difficulties in this life, whether it's the result of our own sin, whether it's just the product of a sinful world, an evil world at times. He can use the trials regardless of how they came into our lives. He can use those trials to further us towards this tested, genuine faith. That's where what I know about God determines what I believe about suffering is in part answered. We don't look at a suffering and, and, and find certain questions we need to ask. We don't need to ask questions like, is God still there? But we can say maybe like the psalmist, God, I don't feel like you're there. We, we don't need to say, is he powerful enough to rescue me? But we might say, even prayerfully say in an authentic way, Lord, I'm questioning. I'm questioning because this is hard. We don't need to ask the question, does God really care about me? But we might feel it. And I believe God even welcomes the authentic cry of the heart that says that. But we don't need to ask those questions because we know the answers to them. You know, someone that I admire deeply, but he died some years ago, is Adoniram Judson. 
really the first missionary that left America, and he and his wife Anne went to the country of Myanmar. And in one sense, I have walked in his footsteps because I have walked those streets, even just three months ago, walking the streets of Rangoon. But I can't claim to have walked in his moccasins. He he left and, and would spend five months getting over there in 1812 to 1813. There was a time a few years into his ministry as a missionary there where he was locked up in a prison for 22 months. And at nighttime, they would literally take the prisoner's feet and tie them up around a pole and then hoist the pole up so that the small of their back was up in the air. Can you imagine just night after night just having your basically almost being on your head or close to it in a filthy prison? Soon after that, when he was released, his wife Anne, who had ministered to him, and she even had a little baby at the time, and would walk to the prison and bring him food, just months after he was released, not just Anne died, his wife, but also that his little girl died. He, he retreated, he was so despondent, he retreated into the, the jungle outside a little town called Mulmain, down in southern Burma. But you know what he would say later in his life? He would say, if I had not felt certain that every additional trial had been ordered by infinite love and mercy, I could not have survived my accumulated suffering. He was able to step back and say, God was in control. And my life, trials as well as good times, have been ordered by a God of infinite love and mercy. It talks about this prize that we have, this prize of great value. And he's talking about this tested, the genuous, the tested genuineness of your faith. And he says, this is something in your life that is more valuable than gold. He says it's a bit like gold in that it has great value. It's like gold that it's something that can become more pure over time. It can be refined. But here's the difference. When, when this world burns up, when Jesus comes back at the revelation and the things of this world are no more, including the gold in it, that tested genuine faith that you, believer, are able to present at the revelation of Jesus Christ will still be there. When I think of that great value, I find myself asking a question. Let me ask you the same. Do I really value a tested, genuine faith as much as I value gold? I know gold's valuable, And you know gold's valuable, whether you have much of it or not. You know, it's valuable. It's always been valuable in human history. But do you value in your life a tested, genuine faith? Because God does. He puts a great value on it. Do you you see this faith of yours as something like gold that can be refined, that can steadily be, be more and more pure with God's help and the refining work of the Holy Spirit? Do you see your faith that way? 
I, I looked at a, just a video yesterday because I know very little about refining of gold. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm probably going to see some little image of, you know, this something that looks really beautiful yellow. Like, you know, if we melted down some, you know, class rings that have been sitting in the, you know, back home in the drawer. And, and we just melted them down. And there's just a little impurity on the top. And, and with a teeny little teaspoon or a little spoon, you just pick out the little impurity on the top. But what I found is I looked at just a short little video on refining of gold. It showed just a whole pile of rocks going down this conveyor belt as the first step. Rocks that I guess somewhere has some gold in it. Broken down and it just talked about this process that started looking very ugly at the beginning. Like where is even the gold in that? Where is the value in this progressive progress towards something of increasing refinement? And it made me think of two things. One is that the refining process, unless something really messes up, continues in, continues in the right direction. I'm not saying we never backslide. I'm not saying we never, we're, never f- fall back and, and, and question and, and things. But there is a sense in which by just talking about gold and, and making an analysis to our faith, that we can picture this tested, genuine faith is something that God wants to see continually progressing towards something of great value in his eyes. To to be able to look back and say, 10 years ago compared to today, thank you, Lord, that through the testing, through the hard times that I came through very imperfectly, but my faith is more refined, thanks to you. Thanks to your love and infinite mercy that has ordered trials and hard times in my life, I have something, I possess something that is more valuable than it, than it was before. It is more refined. It is lasting. Are you elated that things in your life that are contributing to this faith that is becoming more tested and as a result more genuine, are you elated that you possess something that will never cease to be of value for all eternity? Think about how much you work for now, how much any one of us works for now, that sooner or later will burn up, will die, will end, But the sufferings, the trials in our lives, according to what Peter is teaching us, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we are increasingly obtaining something that has value for all eternity. It talks about this reward, the end of verse 7. Though this gold will perish, that our genuine faith tested may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? What does it mean that, that this, this tested genuine faith will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ? Quite honestly, I found myself the first times I began studying this a few weeks ago just assuming as, as should be appropriate, that all the praise, all the glory, all the honor is Jesus. It's all His. And if we're talking about some future time, it must be about Him. But here it's not. 
In fact, the, the scholars agree that, that who is getting this praise, who is getting this honor, who is getting this glory, is you, dear friend. It is you, and you are receiving it from Jesus Christ as you present this tested, genuine faith to him. Now, some people say, well, you know, isn't there some ambiguity? Isn't Jesus getting the honor and glory? Of course he is in the big picture. But this verse, just like it says at the end in verse in chapter 5, when there's this exhortation to elders and, and seek to serve him well, it talks about in chapter 5 that at the end, that uh, in verse chapter 5, verse 4, when Jesus, this chief shepherd, appears, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. He talks about Jesus being the one that is giving to his servants this unfading crown of glory. And the scholars say... It's it's analogous to that, except it's open to all who have walked this life and grown and present to him and are able to present to him a tested, genuine faith. I know some of you really have enjoyed and and been encouraged over the years by a man who's gone on to be with the Lord, William McDonald, Bill McDonald. And listen to what he says when he talked about First Peter in his commentary. I want to read it slowly because it is so good. And it reflects this genuine faith and what it means for you at the revelation, the return of Jesus Christ. Bill McDonald says, Genuine faith will result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Well, you already knew that. But listen to how he expands it further. This simply means that God will reward every instance of faith that has stood the test. He will praise those who are joyful, though surrounded by trouble. He will award glory and honor to tried and suffering believers who were able to accept their tribulations as a vote of confidence from Jesus. Well, there's a joy of loving Jesus despite the trials, and I think that is what's pointed to in the last couple of verses, verse 8. Though you have not seen him, it comes right on this tale of talking about our tested genuine faith, of of Jesus coming back and, and rewarding us when our tested genuine faith is presented to him. But it says in verse 8, Peter can't help himself, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with joy. You know, there is an aspect. It doesn't necessarily come through as clearly in the opening verses. But there is an aspect in which one of the best things that happens as as we experience difficulties, sufferings, trials, hardships, discouragement, whatever word comes to mind to describe what it feels like to you. There is an aspect in which Jesus and walking through that with Jesus is one of the richest rewards of experiencing that and the outcomes of that. He he says, you already love him though you don't see him. But it's as if he's promising as you think of this Jesus when you walk through this together, this is with him. This is a personal relationship. This is the God who says, I'm never going to leave you nor forsake you. You know, it's 
part of my job, sadly, as a physician in an emergency room to see people die. I've seen a decent amount of that in the 25 plus years I've done it. But there's something that sticks with you for a long time when that person is young. Especially when that person is about nine months, like little Marcus was almost 15 years ago. I had seen him a few times. He had some significant congenital health problems. And I'd seen him just not that long before the ambulance brought him in and his mother in the ambulance herself. And Marcus was barely breathing. His heart was failing. His doctor raced in. It was about six in the morning. Together we did everything we could. And then we had to turn to her and say, Marcus is gone. Nine months old. Weeks before even his first birthday. We gave her a little time to herself. What else do you do? (laughs) And we gently pulled the curtain a little ways. And it was just a couple, three minutes later as I was nearby but not in the room that I could see her shadow. I could see her in the chair. I could see her holding little Marcus and saying these words. Marcus, we've been through so much together. And when I think of how you get so close to somebody and how trials have a way of causing that to happen in a way that the good times don't, I think of little Marcus and his mom. Oh, that that would be the case with you and Jesus. Oh, that when you get to heaven and you realize how close you are to him, you realize how much you love him, you'd say, Lord, I wish you'd give me a few more trials because this is so good to love you this much. Oh, that we would walk with him And see the good things that result by experiencing the hardships, doing our best with his help to lean on him and to love him more as we experience that. I grew up not too far from the Chesapeake Bay and a woman who's now 68 years old did as well. Johnny Erickson Tata was someone and I asked just to have a picture of her. That's a recent picture put on the screen. It looks like Joni when you see her name, but she pronounces it Johnny. And some of you, especially those of us that are a little older, probably know the name Johnny Erickson Tata for you know, longer than maybe some of the younger folks here. She's 68, lives in California now, and at age 17, this healthy, vibrant, athletic young lady dove into the Chesapeake Bay, misgaged the water, and she became a quadriplegic as her neck broke between C5 and C6. I, I didn't learn until uh, a few years ago from a friend of mine that the average quadriplegic lives about 10 years after something like that happens. I learned it from a friend of ours named John, who was a neighbor a few doors up, who died just in the last couple of years. And he, as he got close to the 30-year mark, celebrated, I've lived three times longer than most people live who are quadriplegics. He was a believer. Johnny Erickson at age 68, and this picture is just a year old, 
has lived 51 years in a wheelchair. You know, I think she would say that in the early years, there were some successes. There were some tastes that life would go on, that life could be good. She describes, because she was actually involved in young life, and one of my mom, who's 10 years older than Johnny, could claim, as she said, I actually knew her before her accident, at least on an acquaintance level. I helped out at young life on the, on the west side of Baltimore. And, and it was actually some young life friends some Christian friends that picked her up a little while after the accident when Johnny now was in a wheelchair. And they, they managed to pick her up in a way that they could transport her. And they went down to Penn Station, kind of the main station in downtown Baltimore. And you can imagine, like many old train stations, this cavernous place, kind of like an old cathedral, where, where it's the sounds of voices just carry. And they went down and just sang some praise songs. It would have been in the late 60s. Her, her accident happened July 30th, 1967. And, and uh, they remember, or Johnny tells the story just a year ago, as she reflected back 50 years of her illness, of her, of her accident. She, she remembers an old guard, not very happy, not, not on the grumpy side, coming up to them and saying, Hey, you kids, it's 11 o'clock, it's time to go home. Don't you see that no loitering sign? And knowing that they had been singing and seeing just how they looked, and she looked, he looked over at Johnny, and he said, And lady, can you just go ahead and put that wheelchair back where you found it? <laughs> Her friends kind of snickered, and he realized his mistake. But I think she tells it to say there were some times early on when, when I was able to rejoice and, and even laugh a little. But when she talked about looking back, and I put just a few copies of a three-page article, 50 years of living as a quadriplegic, and it's over here if any of you wanted to grab it. As she looked back on 50 years, she would say these words, decades of Bible study and paralysis and pain and cancer. She had cancer in 2010, and the Lord fortunately has, has, has healed her of that. These things have taught me to say, as the scriptures say, it was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. That's Psalm 119. Well, what has the word of God taught her over those years? Here's two things. And I think they're worthy of perhaps your pen putting them on paper. The word of God has taught her that as she would reflect back and say one of the, the, the words that just a single sentence that helped me most was, was a brother in Christ, a mentor, a Bible study leader, who would say these words and, and write to her. And he said, Johnny, God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. If, if you're hurting right now, And you think God loves seeing you hurt. You're mistaken. Let the world think that. Let the world that don't know your Jesus think that and pray for them that their mind would change. But know that like Jesus grieving over Jerusalem, there is so much in this world that he hates. He hates seeing the pain and suffering that we experience in this life. But in his providence... He allows these things and he orders them in such a way that he accomplishes 
what he loves, this tested genuine faith. But I end with just some words that Johnny shared when she was on a stage. She was actually on a stage a few years ago with Bill Hybels, well-known pastor in the United States, and it was at a conference. And, and as she finished whatever talk that she had, there was a time for question and answers. And somebody asked the question, Johnny, how have you done it? How do you keep going on? It's been almost 50 years at the time. It's been almost 50 years that you've gone on in this wheelchair. How have you done it? And here's what she said. She said, this is the only time in history when I get to fight for God. This is the only part of my eternal story when I am actually in the battle. Once I die, I'll be in celebration mode, in a glorified body, in a whole different set of circumstances. But this, this is my limited window of opportunity, and I'm going to fight the good fight for all I'm worth. In this you rejoice, Peter says, though now for a little while you're grieved by various trials. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the words authored through your servant Peter. And I do pray for those in this room whose trials are heavier than many of the rest of us. Would your word and your spirit minister to them today? And Lord, may we all pursue with greater enthusiasm this tested genuine faith that will not be taken from us. May we one day present a well-refined faith for all eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.